Night Talk with Oliver Dixon. You're listening to Night Talk. My name is Oliver Dixon. Thank you so much for your company this evening. The Africa-Russia summit ended today. A declaration with 40, 74 items was published. That was a declaration which is an agreement of priorities and action points between Russia and the African states that were represented. Uh, and significant uh, promises were made earlier on in the summit. One of those, which is uh, Vladimir Putin's promise to deliver grain to uh, troubled African countries free of charge, free grain, and they even promised to handle the logistics of, of getting that across the sea into these African states. Some of them include countries like Mali, for instance, which, which has been troubled by uh, political and uh, you know, violent insecurities. And, and, of course, the impact of the Black Sea deal having come to an end and the disruption caused by it, uh, caused to it by the invasion of Russia in Ukraine is something that is of great significance. When the Africa Peace uh, uh, delegation led by President Cyril Ramaphosa went to Russia, the food insecurity uh, caused by grain shortage and fertilizer shortage was at the top of that agenda. It seems like there was some success to that Africa Peace mission because Vladimir Putin made some significant promises. But can we believe him? I don't know. Kwezim Gubisa, thank you so much for your time this evening. I really, really do appreciate it. Before I even ask if the summit was a success, I do have to ask, is Vladimir Putin a credible interlocutor in this instance? Can we believe him when he says we'll deliver grain free of charge to Africa? We, good evening, Oliver. Um, the relate of the matter is that we don't know. Um, almost all of the recent um, assessments of um, the integrity of the parties to what is currently causing challenges, not only to just simply African food security, but to global food security. Uh, they're not necessarily to be trusted because they've not proven themselves to be in a position to actually live up to what it is that they actually promised to do. But yeah. what is of interest uh, right here is that um, there's a phrase used, is he a trusted interlocutor? Oliver, the relative of the matter, he's the only interlocutor at this point in time that the rest of global forces, African yeah. sector, or the rest of the global secu food security concerned um, entities and initiatives need to actually be talking to. That is the man, Vladimir Putin. He's sitting at, at the Kremlin, and he is ready to actually place his demands. He is ready to actually make what it is that is concerned about to be at the center of the ability of the international community to access a very food, a very important food requirement. Yeah, and and to that point, um, this once again because this is nothing is free in in in, in international relations and geopolitics, uh, right? Absolutely nothing is free. Every action is uh, expected to be met and reciprocated in some way or the other. There must be some benefit that member states reap from uh, their interaction in the international community. Uh, perhaps there were some, uh, you know, utopia-like international relations preceding perhaps the 1980s, uh, when Cuba, for instance, was without expectation supporting uh, the liberation movement in South Africa. Uh, one can perhaps point to that, but in in the current climate, absolutely nothing is free. What does Vladimir Putin gain out of this? To start off in historical terms, that was never the case. Um, almost everybody who's ever done anything for any initiative in geopolitical terms had a reason for doing it. Yeah. 
I mean, if you look into what Cuba has done, at this point in, t- in time, Cuba is possibly one of the few countries that have not come out to collect. But let us take... And that's, some... that's exactly why they're the only example I, I can raise. Yeah, yeah, at this point in time. But let us look at our Scandinavian uh, compatriots or uh, liberation ideological partners. Uh, almost all of them who have almost always told us that our worldview, at least the worldview that we shared with them, would be the one that would seek to see the use of dialogue as the basis of finding solutions to any problems and challenges that we have. At the first point of there being a direct challenge to their stability in the form of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, or at least if you want to use their terminology, at the first sign of Russia invading Ukraine, they join NATO, meaning that they do not necessarily speak what it is that they speak to the rest of us who are their supposed ideological allies. What, the, what this means is that as we as Africa begin to look at, amongst other things, the food security, Black Sea, Grain deal, we need to be asking ourselves yes. what it is that it would mean. What are we selling? Is our sovereignty at stake? What extent of that sovereignty, what strategic thinking should inform our choices that we make on whether we are aligning with Russia or are we aligning with Russia even? To that, one then has to ask, is this promise by Vladimir Putin, the grain, free grain promise, and of course opening that that trade channel once again for African countries to be able to access fertilizers and grain. South Africa, of course, participating in that trade channel, albeit not free of charge, uh, as other African states would be coming out of that. The question has to be asked, is this Putin at his own accord making this an announcement or is this the pressure and persuasion coming out of the Africa Peace Mission? Can we draw a link between the Africa Peace Mission and this declaration? Firstly, uh, we must not draw a link from the Africa Peace Mission that went to Russia and Ukraine. But secondly, we must actually build upon what were the motivations for it. What a lot of people don't necessarily understand is that the basis of the Black Sea Grain Agreement that the rest of the world talks about was as a result of the initial initiatives of African uh, doing, whereby the chair of the African Union at that time, when the war started after the 24th of February last year, 2022, and the chair of the African Union Commission yeah. uh, from Paz actually went to Russia in order to make the case. But what actually happened after there was that level of understanding of what should happen in terms of what Russia could actually allow to actually be uh, allowed to pass through the Black Sea from Ukraine, is that almost everybody then said that that is the basis to actually reframe diplomatic engagement to be of a humanitarian nature, meaning that you can actually hold the two parties, or at least from the European perspective, Russia invading Ukraine, to actually say that the least you can do is to live up to the protocols of international cooperation that says you must be humanitarian, allow everything that has to do with humanitarianism to pass through. Now, that was the first starting point, but what happened after that? Most of the grain that came out of Ukraine and Russia, by the way, through the Black Sea and that particular initiative of an agreement actually went to Western Europe. So Africa has never had an issue of food insecurity as a result of that particular conflict. Because if you look into who does Ukraine provide a, 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 a food security towards, it, yeah. actually it actually does it through United Nations agencies. So when some of us are looking into 
how does the United Nations provide food through United Nations humanitarian agency for refugees? If the grain that comes from Ukraine, how does the United Nations through the World Food Program actually provide assistance and humanitarian aid and food security to Africa, not only Africa, by the way, to the rest of the world. It is through Ukraine. So these are now what Russia and President Putin is actually putting to the fore to say that we need to actually sit around the table and make a deal that works for us. Is it only for Africa's benefit? I don't think so. Yeah. For Russia and Russia's uh, uh, intentions and objectives. Yeah. I, I want us to mo- move a little bit off of our focus towards the actual declaration. Uh, coming out of the declaration are promises and, and, and uh, you know, promises as well as uh, bilateral agreements pertaining to two broad headings that they outline there. One is around mechanisms for dialogue and partnership. And there are about three uh, agreements over there. And the other is around legal and uh, political and legal cooperation, and there's about 70 uh, uh, action agreements over there. With regards to mechanism for dialogue partnership, there's one particular agreement stemming out of that that is fascinating to me, and I want us to focus on that for a little while. I want to read it to you. Number two. It's number, number, two. It's number three, actually. Oh, initiate, <laughs> initiate the creation of a permanent top-level Africa-Russia dialogue mechanism to operate within the African Union multilateral partnership framework in order to coordinate efforts against terrorism and extremism, including violent extremism, conduct, uh, conductive to terrorism, address environmental, food, and information security issues, participate jointly in African Union programs on developing the architecture for peace, stability, and security. Does Russia have the credibility to be having conversations about peace, stability, and security when it cannot commit itself to a de-escalation process? Starting point, no, it doesn't. But why would it be bold enough and be agreeable with uh, what the same number of African heads of states to actually put this in a declaration. The reason of the matter, this is standard diplomatic speak in multilater- multilateral initiatives. Almost everybody goes into the key phrases of your documents, your protocols. Peace and security architecture is at the core of the African Union. What, 70 to 80% of the African Union, Union of the United Nations Security Council deliberations is in Africa. So if you are a P5, a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council, you actually know what are the touching points to actually touch a nerve in Africa. Russia doesn't have this capability, but what is pointing is that a number of countries that are in the P5 and that are dominant in Africa do not have the same credibility. The question we, I think we could be asking is not who Russia is that what Russia actually thinks it could do? It is the question in which African countries, as much as the delegation that went to St. Petersburg, what mm. they allow to be said in their name to partner with Africa. Mm. Mm. To that, the question then is around peace, stability, and security. The question is how do we address the elephant in the room that is the Wagner Group and its role in African nation states where civil wars and active wars, uh, ethnic wars are taking place. Mali comes to mind. Uh, Central Africa Republic comes to mind. Uh, uh, our neighbor Mozambique comes to mind. 
you can't quite speak about that without addressing what has effectively been for years a Putin-endorsed uh, military for hire to which their relationship has now turned sour. Surely then, Putin must give one issue an apology for uh, you know trumping up and, and endorsing the Wagner Group, albeit silently, uh, and then secondly address the question around what that means now that uh, Prigozhin and Putin have had a fallout, what that means for Wagner Group operations in African nation states. Okay, I think from, from, from where I'm sitting, um, having worked in, in some of the countries that the Wagner Group has actually had an op- operations in, Mozambique, Central African Republic, Libya, you name it. Yeah. The rest of the matter is that there should be no apology in exploiting, I'm not saying I've got evidence, in exploiting the notion that the Wagner Group is actually Russia, but without necessarily the apologies of diplomats. Meaning, it is an entity that belongs to the Russian state, but it actually affords Absolutely. the ability to actually do what it wants to do or, or achieve the objectives that it wants to achieve. Without, without being tied. Without being tied. Now, that's the starting point. And once more, because we are Africa, because we are perceived and present ourselves in our weakness, I'm not saying we present ourselves as weak, we present ourselves in our weakest form. We are continuously going to actually have to answer the question to say, if not Russia, who? Many of the members of the United Nations Security Council have got the same orientation when it comes to Africa. We will not actually go to Africa in order for us to be criticized in the United Nations, to be criticized as an individual country, the diplomatic relations we have bilaterally yeah. with, the U- with the AU. But we will continue to send our mercenaries, we'll continue to send our private military entities, we'll continue to use humanitarian entities to to, 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 to advance narrow diplomatic objectives, yeah. as well as intelligence objectives. So the relate of the matter is that when we look into what it is, what this week has done, is that we continue as the African continent to be at play, not to be players, to be at play, in order to actually say that, can we serve an ascendance of a non-Western uh, influence, in, influenced world, or can we outrightly be um, an agent of Russia mm. setting itself to challenge the existing dominance of the U.S. and the broader West, starting with Europe, which yeah. he, Putin feels that at this point in time, Europe at some point will have to sit down and actually say that the economic benefits of being closer to the natural resources that Russia is actually providing or that they are trading with is actually a basis to leverage a change in Russia, not. Yeah. And then lastly, there's another declaration which for me is incredibly interesting, and I'll tell you why. And it's the last one, number 74. They agreed to develop cooperation in joint prospects on environmental projects and sustainable development, including on the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, the development of low emission technology and support for the developmental of a circular economy. Every time the conversation around renewable energy and decarbonization props up between uh, the international community and Africa, there is an accusation 
that those making the resources and funds available are trying to colonize African energy independence. That is to say, uh, you don't want Africa to industrialize. How can we industrialize without coal? How, you know, and so these conversations about renewable energy, which by and large have been led uh, by COP17, for instance, uh, have been led by the Paris uh, uh, Agreement, have been led by the U.S., uh, and, and now the certain uh, U.S. European member states that has made uh, incredible amounts of funding available to the developing world, South Africa being a beneficiary thereof, has been accused of stunting the industrial growth of Africa um, and once again has been accused of passing the buck of their industrial doings uh, of ruining the environment and the planet to Africa and placing the onus and responsibility in African nation states uh, to then save the planet, so to speak. Yet, Russia is doing exactly the same in terms of promises. There's a commitment to greenhouse gas reductions, decarbonization, um, and and, uh, renewable energy. Should it be read in the same way as when those promises are made by the U.S. and by the EU? Oliver, um, you've, you've, you've hit that on the nail, my brother. The, the, the issue here is this one. Um, when, 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 when all of these countries make pronouncements about the continent, they are actually looking at the power dynamic. Who is influential in South Africa? Who is influential in Ethiopia? What is the broader narrative that actually informs the choices that these governments make? Or at least, who is opposed to the choices that these governments make? Now, when Russia tells us in point seven four of developing cooperation on all of the things that you've mentioned. What you fail to actually appreciate, or at least that I've appreciated more than you possibly have, is all of the agreements, or rather all of the points that have actually been uh, referred to in the very same document of the declaration, whereby all that they're doing, they're speaking about sovereignty, meaning that many of these countries that are signatories to very important agreements that actually are supposed to define where we go as, a, as, as humanity in terms of climate uh, security or environmental security and so on. They are saying that they can determine for themselves the pace, content, and direction of what Russia would actually be working on. Now, let's go, let, us, let us take a step back and look at immediate issues. We now have got the fifth largest uranium producer or uh, uh, in the form of Niger. Yeah. This country is actually at the center of exactly the questions of sovereignty, ecological yeah. safety, you name it. Can, can, uh, can, can I perhaps pause you there and ask you to do this for us? Draw the link between energy independence and sovereignty as, as, as a nation-state concept. Why is there such an close and important link between that? In simple terms, if you can actually influence a country's energy capability, you can influence the content, pace, and direction of its industrialization. With Mm. industrialization, you can inform its foreign policy. With industrialization, you can inform its trade. With industrialization, you can inform the content and sustainability of its governance. That's it. So if a country does not have uh, sustainability or sovereignty when it comes to energy, all of the beautiful things that we're talking about are likely going to be found to be lacking. So when we are looking at developments on the African continent and the natural resources that are found in these countries, we need to be asking ourselves, who would actually benefit from these natural resources in order for them to influence that country and that region's um, 
uh, industrialization, governance, politics, foreign policy. Yeah. Because if you at this point in time, what is coming out from some of us who are observing these issues is that the ECOWAS posture towards Niger is considered to be the guarantee or insurance of saying these ECOWAS countries are going to actually make sure that Niger does not necessarily become independent of France, does not become independent of Western influences on the basis of the fact that Niger, like many other countries, are part of the Sahel G5 grouping that is fighting uh, in the, uh, what is it called, these people that are terrorists. Now, yeah. these are things that are of importance to Niger, importance to Africa, but do not find expression when we are having the conversations and discussions in the media, in academia, and elsewhere. Yeah. Kwezi, we're going to have to leave it there. Really, really do appreciate it. Uh, it has been insightful, as always. Uh, Kwezi Mkobisa, who is uh, from the University of Johannesburg, working at the Center for African Diplomacy and Leadership there. Night Talk, giving you depth and texture to the conversations that matter. Monday to Thursdays, 10 p.m.